gosh, it is coming close, guys. Oh my gosh! Oh my god! If you've ever gone whale watching, I'm sure you can relate to this woman's emotion as she saw for the first time a massive marine mammal curiously approach the boat and then dive back under the surface of the water. It's exhilarating and exciting, and a reminder that there's so much that we don't know about what goes on in our oceans. That's why I became a cetacean naturalist a few years ago. You can call me a whale nerd. And living in San Francisco, we're lucky to have many opportunities to observe whales right from the shore. And we can even go out whale watching from a boat that leaves from Pier 39 every day on a quest to see these majestic marine mammals that come to the waters of the Bay Area and the Pacific Ocean to feed and find shelter. Gray whales have historically migrated past our coastline every spring, but 2019 was different. Every week, it seemed like there was another report of a gray whale stranding on one of our beaches, causing locals and scientists to start to worry. The trend continued all along the Pacific coast, from south to north, with 70 gray whale deaths reported from Southern California to Alaska this year. What was causing these deaths? If you said climate change, you're right. And because the local news coverage of the story was incomplete and left most Bay Area residents with more questions than answers, I spoke with some marine mammal experts so they could explain the complexities behind these heartbreaking deaths. You'll hear from Sydney Minges, the naturalist on board San Francisco Whale Tours, Dr. Sean Johnson, Vice President of Veterinary Science at the Marine Mammal Center, Dr. Francis Gulland, Commissioner at the Marine Mammal Commission, and Mary Jane Schramm, Media Liaison for the Greater Farallons Marine Sanctuary. I'll let them take it from here. Welcome to Eyes on Conservation, Episode 182. Are gray whales the canary in the climate coal mine? My name is Sydney and I work for San Francisco Whale Tours as a naturalist. My background is in marine biology from UC Berkeley. And here at San Francisco Whale Tours, we are not only naturalists, we are also researchers that partner with Golden Gate Cetacean Research out of San Francisco State, doing ongoing research of the wildlife we see in this area. We actually are able to utilize the wildlife trips that we give to the public every single day to do our ongoing research on these whales in the area. So that means everyone on board actually gets to act as a citizen scientist as they're taking photos and observing these animals. What we're doing is attempting to document all the individuals that come into the bay. So we can physically identify every single whale we see based on different markings on their body. We identify them based on photographs. And then we can utilize these photographs to tell how long the whales are staying in the area, what they're doing, and if we've seen them in previous years. Now, ultimately, this research is attempting to get more protected areas for these whales in this region. So by taking people out today to view the animals, we're actually guaranteeing their protection for the future. So when they come back 50 years from now, we'll still see them. I'm Dr. Sean Johnson. I'm the head veterinarian here at the Marine Mammal Center and I direct the veterinary science program here and that includes everything that we do with the animals from 
taking the phone calls, rescuing them off the beaches, bringing them here for treatment, or as in the case with whales, often the dead whales, we send teams out to do necropsies and try to understand why they died and why they washed up on our beaches. The Marine Mammal Center is an, an amazing facility. We've been here in Sausalito for 44 years, and our, our primary rescue range is here in Central California, 600 miles of coastline, so any marine mammal that's in need of help, we respond. And if we can, we bring the animals here to our facility in Sausalito and provide medical care with the ultimate goal of releasing that back, the animal back out in the wild. But during that process, we're collecting all kinds of data that can be used for marine mammal policies. It can understand the diseases. Marine mammals are really the sentinels of the sea, so they also give us a window into the health of the ocean that they live in. My name is Frances Gulland, and I'm a veterinarian. And I came to the Marine Mammal Center 25 years ago and worked initially as a research vet and then a clinician, but essentially as a vet, and now focus my work on being a commissioner with the U.S. Marine Mammal Commission. The Marine Mammal Commission is a small, independent federal agency, and our task is to ensure that the government activities in the U.S. fulfill the Marine Mammal Protection Act of 1972 to conserve and protect marine mammals. Well, in the 70s, I think there was a, this great environmental movement in the, in the U.S. and a desire to protect watersheds, you know, clean water, and really protect whales. So in 1972, this really landmark piece of legislation was passed, the Marine Mammal Protection Act. And that is the law that protects all marine mammals now in U.S. waters. And under that act, whales and dolphins and seals and sea lions are managed by, by NOAA, the, essentially the Weather Service, and they come under the Department of Commerce. And walruses, sea otters, polar bears are managed by the Fish and Wildlife Service under the Department of the Interior. So at that time, Congress recognized that both those departments had some inherent conflicts with marine mammals because the Department of Commerce had fisheries as well as whales, dolphins, seals, and sea lions. Department of Interior had walruses, polar bears, sea otters, manatees, and also development of oil and gas resources. Because of those conflicts, they created an independent marine mammal commission whose task was solely to focus on conservation of marine mammals. So that all goes back to 1972 when Congress really was thinking about how to fill the, the desires of the people, which was to protect marine mammals and conserve them for future generations. My name is Mary Jane Schramm, and I'm the media liaison and public outreach specialist for NOAA's Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary. Starting actually in 1982, during the year of the really big El Nino, I began to work for the Marine Mammal Center in Sausalito, volunteering. And very soon I gained an appreciation for how animals that live in the ocean, especially mammals like we are, can suffer from extreme conditions and also from anthropogenic, you know, human-caused ails. I spent nine years at the Marine Mammal Center. I realized that marine mammals are incredible ambassadors for the ocean, and the ocean is something that touches all of us in all aspects of our lives. So when it came as an opportunity to work directly for Greater Farallon's National Marine Sanctuary, I literally leaped at the chance, and I have been here for, well, since 2001. We do a tremendous amount in terms of education and outreach. We do a tremendous amount of science. We do a lot of networking within the community and nationally and sometimes globally with regard to issues relating to climate change. What we do is we make sure that the right people are talking to each other because it's a huge puzzle to unsort, and we need many minds and many hands and many hearts behind the effort.
Gray whales are an unusual species in that they are the only bottom-feeding whales that we have in the world. And what they do is they will swim down to the seafloor and they'll turn on their right sides and they will open their mouths wide and engulf a huge amount of silt, water, and food combined. And then they use their baleen plates, which hang like a fringe from their upper jaw, close their mouth, they filter all of the silt and water out, retaining the food behind those baleen plates. They squeeze the, the mud out of there through their baleen and they collect all the amphipods, the little crustaceans, the worms out of the mud, and they eat just tons and tons of that all summer long while they're up in the Arctic, in the shallow waters up there. And they gain a tremendous amount of weight. They store this energy in their blubber because they have a, an incredible migration ahead of them. Because they only forage in such a short period of time, if they can't find the right amount of food, if there's changes in the, on the food that they eat, you know, the, the worms aren't surviving because the ocean temperatures or the crustaceans or the amphipods that are in the mud aren't as abundant because of, of all the changes that are happening up there, then, then we're going to see the impact on the whales. I'll give you an annual rundown of what the gray whale's calendar looks like. So they spend the summertime in the Arctic, the Bering and the Chukchi Seas primarily, and that's where they're able to lay down a very, very thick fat layer. So by the end of the summer into early fall, they have enough energy saved up that they can swim all the way down to Baja, California, have their babies, have their calves, and swim all the way back up, which is a roughly 12,000 mile round trip to the Arctic so that they can spend the rest of the summer that next year feeding, once again, developing the fat layer that's going to see them through the next year's 12,000 mile round trip migration. Now what has been happening is that the food that they ordinarily find in the Arctic has been disappearing at an alarming rate. The gray whales feed in the summer up in Arctic waters. They migrate along the west coast of the U.S. down to Baja and they give birth to their calves in the lagoons in Baja, California. Once the breeding season is over, the males leave and start the path up to Alaska again. And that usually happens in December, January. That's when you see the, the whales start to come by our coastline here. And then the, the females with the calves follow them later in the spring and stay close to shore because it's dangerous with the calves to make this huge migration all the way back up to Alaska. And this is one of the longest migrations of any, any mammal. So during that migration, they typically don't feed. So it's a long, natural fasting process that requires a lot of energy to give birth, to produce milk for the calf, and to swim north. The gray whale migration and the, gray, the species is an incredible story because most of their feeding is happening up in the Arctic, in the Bering and Chukchi Sea, and so far north Alaska. And they go up there every summertime, and as the ice is melting, there's just a huge amount of productivity. That's why so many animals go to the Arctic for the summertime, because there's so much food. There, there's 24-hour sunlight. There's so much krill and algae in the ocean, and that, that just cascades to an incredible amount of food for everyone. With the sea ice melting really rapidly and the ocean temperatures changing very quickly, that food web in the Arctic has been disrupted and it's changing very, very rapidly because the sea ice isn't staying in the locations as long as it needs to and it's, it's receding really quickly. And eventually they're predicting there, there won't be any ice in the Arctic on the North Pole all summer long in not too distant future. These rapid changes are just completely changing the way that these animals 
are behaving and they're unable to find the food. The marine mammals are the, the top consumers of the ocean and, and there has to be a whole cascade that happens in the food web in order for them to, to thrive. And so whenever these top predators or consumers like the whales are, are having a hard time thriving, finding enough food, they're interacting with humans, they're an indicator to us that there's a problem. And with the gray whales, we're seeing that these whales are, are malnourished, they're skinny, they didn't get enough food last summer when they were in Alaska, and they're basically starving to death. And for us, that is an alarm that, hey, what's happening that this species is not thriving? And, and we have to look to where they eat. We know from the oceanography side that there's been a huge retreat in the ice shelf. There are big changes in the summer feeding grounds of the whales. So it makes sense to think, oh, oh, we have a signal of some increased whales on the northward migration. We have big changes in the feeding grounds. What's going to happen? And we really need to be paying attention and to be putting effort into investigating what's happening in the Arctic. But we do know that they feed on the seabed. And, and what they feed on, they feed on these invertebrates that are in turn are feeding on zooplankton and phytoplankton. And the initial part of that food chain, that first part of that cascade, the plankton do initially grow underneath the edge of the ice shelf. Some of the hot spots for whales feeding in the Arctic are places at the edge of the ice where these plankton proliferate and then they're fed on by invertebrates that in turn the whales feed on. So it just makes sense if the ice has retreated that the whales have further to go or they may have shifted and they're feeding on something else, which maybe have less calories, may not have exactly the right nutrients, and they could be in a state of the edge of malnutrition. This is a story about climate change and the ice melting in the Arctic and the huge changes that are happening in the ocean. And it's indicating that the, the ocean is sick right now, and these species, the marine mammals, are having, some of them are having a hard time dealing with those rapid changes. So we have had multiple tours where we're going out like normal, searching for gray whales around the bay, looking out for the spouts of how we find them. And instead of finding live gray whales, we have actually found dead gray whales in the bay. One of these instances being a very bloated gray whale that was floating up at the surface with lots of seabirds surrounding it. Now, as the animal is approaching, we're trying to figure out what we're looking at. All the guests get very excited at first because they think that we have found a whale. But then once we realize that this animal is unfortunately deceased, it turns the tide on the whole tour. So it can be very hard. We immediately tell people what they're seeing. We're always honest with everyone about what's going on. We tell them where to stand if they don't want to see this animal, especially we get lots of young children on the boat. But we explain to them that there are multiple reasons why this animal could have passed away. The number one reason we've seen this year is malnutrition. This year, there has been a huge spike in the number of dead gray whales along the southern central California coast, as well as in Oregon and Washington state. So we always do see dead gray whales in this area, in the Bay Area, in February, March, early April, most years. Most years we'll see one or two dead whales simply on a population level. There'll be some less fit individuals, maybe a few that have parasites, maybe a few that have some congenital problems. So that's, it's normal to see one or two. 
But this year, it began to go up into the tens and the into the twenties. And as the whales swam north, that pattern was seen in Oregon and then in, in Washington. Most of the strandings have happened in March, April, May. Most of them have been females. The biologists that were studying the whales in Mexico saw that about half the whales that were down there were underweight based on um, previous years and that the calf production was low. There was less calves born this year than in previous years. So that's truly an indication that last summer the whole whale population was having a hard time finding enough food and, and creating this level of starvation that we are seeing here in California and along the coast. So by the time we got to May, and there were clearly this larger numbers of dead whales all the way up the coast, it filled both the criteria of an unusual mortality event, meaning the numbers had gone up. An unusual mortality event simply means something unexpected is causing we mammals to die. So it's pretty much as it sounds. It's something that's unusual, it's unexpected, and it involves deaths over the norm, over what we see typically. We're also seeing die-offs of seabirds in Alaska, and there's been a, a die-off of humpback whales in Alaska two years ago, and a decrease in the number of humpback whales that went from Alaska to Hawaii to carve last year. So there are definitely some signs of things changing in the Arctic. We speculate that there's such big changes happening in the Arctic and such dramatic changes in ice distribution, water temperature, plankton, food chains, that we assume that's part of what's happening here, but we, we basically don't know the exact series of steps. It'll take quite an effort to figure out what's gone wrong with whale diets in the Arctic. But also it was very reminiscent of what happened in 98, 99 and 2000, when one-fifth of the whale population at that time died over that three-year period. The scale of the increase in whale deaths was much greater in 1999. So I remember in May one year, we had 30 dead whales in 1999, just in San Francisco Bay. So, you know, imagine driving over to Richmond to sample a, a dead gray whale. Before we finished doing the necropsy, the phone went and there was a dead gray whale in the South Bay. Before we finished even getting down there, there was a call of another dead gray whale near the airport. So it was just a continual gray whales just, you know, floating around the bay. This time, it's more like one to two a week. So it's not such a dramatic increase. The other thing that's different now than in 1999 was all the animals in 1999, when we necropsied them, were really emaciated. You could see the spines, you could see the scapula, they were covered in sea lice. This year, in the, the whales that have been examined, some of them are thin, but they're not all emaciated. There have been a couple that had entanglement scars, so they had probably died as a result of being entangled in discarded fishery gear or lost fishery gear. And then some of them have had injuries from being hit by boats. So there's a little bit of some other things going on, and it's still early days, really, to know what's happening. If this was the equivalent of what happened 20 years ago, we really didn't understand what was happening until later in the year when we had more information. So that started with an increase in the number of dead whales observed on the northward migration, but then continued for a full two years. And by the, at the end of the two years, so by 2000, when that number of whales migrating past was counted, we as a community recognize that about a fifth of the population had died. So that's why we're worried now is, is the numbers of dead whales to date isn't really something that would, would terrify you as a scientist. So 
you know, one argument could be that the population has now increased, it's recovered, so we are going to see more dead whales. What makes it worrying is that this was very similar to what we saw in, in 98, and it gradually built up and became really enormous by the following two years, so that could happen. We started getting reports as early as February of gray whales coming into San Francisco Bay, and that was very unusual for them to come actually into the bay and spend some time here. So some of the theories are that these whales were looking for food. They were malnourished. They needed to, to eat in order to continue their migration. And we have a shallow bay here. There's probably some food in here for them. So that was the working theory. And another idea is, is that they're, they're trying to get out of the open ocean, out of the storms and the big waves of the spring, and they can come into the protected areas here. So we were tracking gray whales in the bay um, since February, and there were multiple whales in the bay throughout that time period. And unfortunately, a lot of those whales then end up dying, washing up on our beaches or getting stuck in the mudflats with our researchers and, and our expertise and going out and doing necropsies on the whales that stranded here. We learned that most of them were malnourished. Most of them were females. Some of them were juveniles or young animals. A handful of them also got struck by ships. The animals that have stranded this year, they've been adult females, they've been young juvenile males and females, a couple calves, the likely calves that were separated from their mom or their mom abandoned them because um, she was having a hard time herself. So it's been a variety, but it's been mostly females that have stranded themselves. The majority of the animals that we have seen pass away this year have been younger gray whales, calves and yearlings that are just starting out their life and not finding enough food. We immediately will call the Coast Guard and the Marine Mammal Center. The Coast Guard will have that animal towed to Angel Island where there are beach areas that they can bring the animal onto. And then the Marine Mammal Center will come out and do what's called a necropsy, which is an animal autopsy on this gray whale. That is how we will figure out what actually was the cause of death for these animals. When we get a call about a whale that stranded itself, I mean, we mobilize our team, our uh, necropsy pathology team, to go out and really our ultimate goal is to try to determine what caused the stranding, what caused the animal to die. And that requires us to do a full necropsy or autopsy. And that is cutting into the animal, removing the, the skin and the blubber, and getting into the organs, looking at the bones. These animals, a lot of them look malnourished on the outside. Their skin is in very poor condition, which is typical of animals that are starving. But as we dive deeper into them, we find broken bones, we find hemorrhages from potentially boar's trauma from being hit by a ship, or, or we look in their stomach to see have they been eating, have, what have they been eating, are there any infections or parasites or anything else that could cause this animal to have stranded. So it's really an investigation, and every whale we go to, we could find something new and different, so we don't assume what the cause of stranding was for that. We've had 13 necropsies that we've performed this year, uh, the most recent one was a small calf that was on Lemontor Beach. The animal was extremely emaciated, thin and skinny. There was no blubber. The animal had no blubber, so it obviously had not been eating, getting milk from its mom for a long period of time. That was a young animal born this year. That's all we can really say about that, except that it was, it was stranded and it was separated from its mom or, or died from starvation and its mom continued on the migration. 
the animal that washed up on Ocean Beach is a very public beach right there in San Francisco. And, and that was unfortunately an adult whale that um, was malnourished, but also had get, got struck by a ship. It takes time for them to lose weight. And so that was probably the primary reason why that animal was close to shore and was not feeling well, potentially couldn't get out of the way of a ship, was, was migrating in ship lanes that they normally don't do. So we, we rarely see gray whales that are getting struck by ships during their migration path. This is a, definitely an increase in the number of ship strikes that we've seen in the gray whales. So there's something that's changing probably their behavior or the ships have changed their paths, but there's been some change in the patterns here that cause these gray, gray whales these, to get hit by the ships. The hard thing about examining a dead whale is that they, obviously they're big and they decompose really fast because they have this nice layer of blubber around them that essentially insulates them from losing temperature. By the time someone spots a dead whale floating and then it's towed ashore to a place where it can be necropsied, the internal organs actually start to decompose. So it actually takes a lot of effort to get a whale that's fresh enough that you can get samples that are suitable for, for example, looking for new viruses or for histology or for doing sort of more sophisticated testing. So if we look back again at 1999, out of the 400 dead whales that died, only three were fresh enough for full histology, toxicology, infectious disease testing. The fact that this has now been declared an unusual mortality event means that there's essentially more money to make more expedient post-mortem exams. Once a die-off of marine mammals is declared officially by NOAA as an unusual mortality event, then they can tap into a fund they have for responding to such events. So that fund can increase the amount of research done on samples collected from the animals. It can pay just for a team to actually go out and examine a whale. It's actually pretty expensive to do a post-mortem on a whale because you have to tow it to a beach where it isn't going to you know, basically contaminate a, a nice bathing beach. It takes time for people to cut it up and sample it. And then laboratory analyses, like you know, chemical analyses, looking for pollutants, that all takes time and money. So this fund is, is really important. They have a, a team of experts that they consult, and they look at the number of deaths that occur um, each year up to that date. And then if the number is significantly over the mean, then they will declare it unusual. A lot of times we're thinking about the individual animal, the live animal, the animals, the seals that you see here behind me, and getting them back out in the ocean. But really where we can make the greatest impact is collecting the information and data about the individuals. And, and that means that we, we have experts on site, we have a pathologist, we, go, we spend the extra time and resources to get out into the field. Some of these are very difficult places to get to, to do the necropsies, collect the tissue samples that the researchers are gonna examine. Maybe they're, we're, we're gonna find a disease in the future or a biotoxin that's having an impact on these whales. All of that is such important work that we that the science and the research is, is critical to finding the answers to the, and, and the solutions to these problems. Greater Farallon's Marine Sanctuary is actually lying outside the Golden Gate, so San Francisco Bay is not a part of it, but they're immediately contiguous with each other. There is such 
incredible interchange between bay waters and outer ocean waters with each change of the tide, literally, that the two are parts of the same ecosystem, essentially. To give you a profile of the sanctuary itself outside the Golden Gate, we have a number of threatened and endangered species. We have humpback whales and blue whales and fin whales. We have very significant populations of all of these animals. And to give you an idea of how productive the ocean area is in terms of producing food for not just whales, but also for our fisheries, one blue whale in a single day can eat up to four tons of krill, which are these tiny little shrimp-like crustaceans. One day, four tons. You know, and that's an amazing amount. And they can come here to, the, to our outer coast waters and find that much food to support a population of them. Humpbacks eat a little bit less, you know, one ton per day. But, then, but it still gives you an idea that this is really one of the fourth or fifth most productive spots on the entire planet. It's an area more broadly known as the California Current Ecosystem. And it experiences something called coastal upwelling which is very strong here, and that means that we get primary productivity with phytoplankton, which are tiny little ocean plants, zooplankton, which are little ocean animals that feed on them, all the way up to this scale of a blue whale. The San Francisco Bay is incredibly unique because it is an estuary. It's a place where we have the ocean and the freshwater rivers meeting and mixing, and this creates a very unique habitat to find these whales. Certain species, like gray whales, like the muddy fresh water and will actually go pretty far into the bay to feed. The humpback whales will utilize the tides that are being pushed into the bay to feed on little fish. This region, again, we see so much amazing wildlife because of that estuary system, but that does pose a threat to these animals coming into the bay because there is so much uh, ship traffic and recreational boating traffic as well. We do see in this area large cargo ships, cruise ships, and other large freighters constantly coming into the bay every single day. It's the second busiest shipping port on the entire west coast, which is very important industry, but if a large ship like that were to strike a whale, it will always be fatal. And we have had at least five cases of that already this year, just in the last few months with the gray whales that migrate through this area. Starting in mid-February, we saw the first of the hungry gray whales coming into San Francisco Bay. Now, ordinarily in the springtime, we may see in the entire springtime season five animals. Well, we now have scores of animals that have been seen coming into San Francisco Bay. A lot of them have been dying. They've been, in many cases, described as extremely nutritionally depleted, starving. Some of them have been hit by boats, and that's basically because their hunger has driven them into an area that is no longer safe to be, but they're desperate to feed. We're seeing difference in behavior. The whales are coming into the bay. The whales, obviously, were getting in the path of these ships. We kind of understand how this is happening so that we can potentially modify and ask for changes and regulations that will reduce the ship strikes. And that, that could be slowing the ships down in certain areas or during certain times of the year when the whales are here, having more observers out in front uh, looking for the whales, making some policy changes that will hopefully reduce the interactions between humans, and, and not just ships, but all the, all the boats that are out on the bay. We can't really control where the whales go, but we can control where we go.
The entrance to San Francisco Bay, it's, it's called basically the Golden Gate Straits, is a narrow area that is at its narrowest only a mile across. And through this very narrow channel, on average per year, we have roughly 8,000 one-way vessel transits. And I'm talking about ships that are 300 gross tons or larger, so big ships. And we have an extremely busy port, the Port of Oakland, the Port of Stockton, tremendous amount of ship traffic also from the um, refineries too. So all of that vessel traffic has to push through the Golden Gate. And any whale that is attempting to come into San Francisco Bay has to make that same journey. If you've heard the expression dire straits, I can think of no better illustration than that circumstance that sets up here with whales using the same waters as huge ships. So they're coming in basically the same shipping lanes that the ships are using. And some of them are foraging as far north as San Pablo Bay and some of them as far south as San Mateo. Some have not been seen feeding. They're just possibly coming in because they have no more strength and they're seeking the safety of inland waters because out here we have killer whales. It's basically like ringing the dinner bell for killer whales. Killer whales know that the gray whales are making their migration north at this time of year. So by seeking refuge inside San Francisco Bay, they're escaping big storm surge, they're escaping killer whale predation. The Bay Area, actually one of the programs and collaborations that I think we should be really proud of is the effort to reduce the number of whales hit by ships. So the Marine Commission has funded some of the work being done by the Greater Farallons Marine Sanctuary Association. This program has been developed to basically encourage ships to slow down as they come in through the Golden Gate Bridge and come through the shipping lanes to ports in, in the East Bay, in San Francisco as well, cruise ships. The sanctuary has devised this vessel speed reduction program for the Bay Area. Our partners with the Bay Area Air Quality Control District as well as the shipping industry, quite a, a number of companies who are slowing their vessels when they are in these shipping lanes. These are areas that in the springtime all the way through fall are frequented by feeding endangered whales like humpbacks, blue whales, and fin whales. Now the gray whales, they may be benefiting by this same program to slow the ships down to 10 knots of speed, which allows a little bit of time for evasive action, or it could in increase the survivability if a collision between a ship and a whale does occur. So we crafted this program with the marine sanctuaries and with other agencies in the shipping community to slow down ships that are very large ships, 300 gross tons or larger, when they are in these specific shipping channels. So instead of going at 15 to 20 knots, they're going down to 10 knots instead. And 10 knots is about equivalent to 11 and a half miles per hour. We've had a wonderful sense of cooperation from a number of shipping companies. We just awarded 22 shipping companies that use San Francisco Bay and some other ports on the coast with slowing their fleets down from 20 to 22 knots down to 10 knots specifically to give whales a break. It's been a great exercise in commerce and conservation working together. We've enjoyed a 45% success rate and we've done extremely aggressive outreach within the shipping community 
So this is something that we can proactively do. We cannot control what the whales do. We cannot control what the whales' food does, but we can control what we do. We can ask for commerce, in this case the, the shipping industry, to help us with whale conservation. That is all a voluntary process, but by tracking ship speeds and also informing ships of when whales are in the area, there's been a real effort from, from the shipping companies to reduce a percentage of their ships when they come into the bay. So we know from, from science, from collecting data on whales that have been hit by ships, that if a ship is going less than 10 knots, whales rarely get killed. So we think what's happening is the whales have time to hear the ship and get out of the way, and it just has really reduced the number of whales being hit by ships. So that program, it's a gem of the Bay Area because it's voluntary, there was no legislation passed, but it was based on science and based on the knowledge of slowing ships down could protect whales. Grey whales, like many species, have a remarkable ability to recover impacts as long as they're given some slack. We found that the gray whales were nearly wiped out by whaling because they are the most coastal of all of our large whale species here. They use the same calving grounds year after year. So once Charles Scammons, who is a historic whaling captain, found, hey, it's like literally shooting fish in the bucket, they pretty much wiped the gray whale population out except for a relict population from which today's population has essentially bred down. When they took that big hit in 1999 and 2000, their numbers dropped considerably. And yet from that date, they started to exploit some alternative types of food. They were seen feeding on herring eggs, licking them or sucking them off kelp fronds up in the Pacific Northwest. So they're getting a little bit more flexible and more opportunistic. And that's a good thing because that's really the key to survival when you are an endangered species or when you're a species under pressure. Being able to have a plan B and follow it through may mean the difference between a local extinction and success and increase. We've seen their numbers continuing to increase. They're now up to 27,000, which may be roughly the same number as they were before whaling started. But that was with an abundant supply of food in the Arctic. Now that the Arctic supply of food is extremely compromised, it changes the equation. The numbers have changed on the supply side. They're growing, but their food supply is decreasing. Whales should have food in the Arctic. That's basically what it comes down to. These are dark times. We're going to see resiliency among species that are in dire peril right now. We will lose some species. We have already lost species. The southern resident killer whale population is down to 75 animals as of the time we speak today. And is that going to be a viable number from which they can recover? I don't really know. There are just too many pressures on them to stabilize first and then increase. However, awareness is increasing. We are getting we're speaking with a louder voice these days, and there are more people who are receptive to hearing our message. And they're also, and this is a really critical point, they're seeing that they have a role in this whole process. Put less carbon into the air and into the ocean. We can't stop global climate change, but we can do our level best, household to household, school to school, club to club, 
individual to individual to slow it down. Our species is here. We're calling the shots, basically, and our needs are demanding. We sacrifice certain areas. Now we can protect them as much as we can. You know, the EPA, the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, these are all measures that have been taken, and they've made a huge difference. There are things we can do, but we can't stop commerce altogether. We can simply work with commerce the way the sanctuaries have done and are planning to continue doing to help make them partners in having a better bay and, by extension, a better world for all of us. It's difficult working at a facility like ours where we, we see pain and suffering all day long. And uh, it isn't just the whales, but it's a lot of the marine mammals right now in the ocean. And where I find hope is, is that people care. People are starting to hear the messages. Is, you know, these animals are telling us, they're showing us concrete evidence that, that there are problems with our ocean and our planet. And, and I know that uh, eventually the people will want to protect these animals and, and prevent the suffering that's happening with all of the marine animal species. And, and really, we, we can't survive the human population without a healthy ocean. I know that we're not going to turn a blind eye to the whales. They're, they're really able to, to tell this story. We're able to tell their story so that people will feel like they, they can do small changes that will have a greater impact in the future. We're seeing the impacts that drastic and rapid climate change, especially in the ocean, can have on a certain species like the gray whale. The gray whale is an amazing success story after its protections from hunting, its population has rebounded back to pre-hunting levels. So nothing has changed with the gray whales, they've been thriving. So something is changing in their environment. There are sentinel species telling us that, hey, there is some major fluctuations happening that are impacting this species that lives in a huge swath of the ocean all the way from Alaska to Mexico. It is an alarm to be raised that the ocean has a fever and it's sick, and they're an indication of that. There's lots that, that we can do as individuals and as a community. The, the first part is to understand what the risks are to the whales, and that's what we're doing here at the Marine Mammal Center. So being our eyes and ears, if you see an animal that's in distress or a whale, you're out boating, you see a whale, is to give us a call, and we'll, we'll start the process to understanding if this is just a normal healthy whale that's in the bay or if it's, it's an animal that we need to keep an eye on. It's hard to say, oh, these whales are dying because they're not eating enough food in Alaska, and how can we impact that? I think all of us as a community need to understand how the increased ocean temperatures and the Earth's temperatures in general is having this broad impact throughout the whole world. There is not a solution. Once these whales get to this point, it's not like we can go out and feed them or, or somehow create an, a place for them to catch up and eat their food. We really have to think bigger picture. We have to think about about what's happening in the Arctic and how we hopefully can stop this crazy changes that are happening in our oceans right now, the fluctuations in the temperatures and the acidification and all the pollution that we're putting in there. You know, we have to think of the ocean as, as essential to life on Earth. And if, if the ocean starts to die, it's gonna impact all of us. And I think it's a call for all of us to think bigger picture on making changes to prevent and slow down the climate change that is happening. Gray whales are essentially passing through, so they're migrating along the shoreline. So really, for them, we just need to make sure we don't have offshore oil and gas development, so they don't have 
great big oil wells to bump into. We need to make sure we can keep ships you know, within shipping lanes below 10 knots when there's whales around. And then we also just need to be aware of how discharge can affect pollution in the food chain, how harmful algal blooms can result from increased eutrophication. So we just need to make sure we have essentially a healthy coastal ecosystem for, for whales to swim through. For me, the reason to worry is that it's not just grey whales. If the cause of the grey whales dying is change in the environment in the Arctic, we also know that there are dead seabirds, we know that there have been changes in humpback whale distribution, we know that polar bears having to swim further, that walruses are hauling out on beaches because they can't get to the ice. So, so it's worrying in the sense of it's just another another symptom of big changes in the Arctic that are just happening exponentially and nothing anyone's doing right now is going to slow the rate of ice melt. But the fact that it's part of a bigger syndrome of change is, is actually terrifying. I say as I sit in 99 degrees in the Bay Area, you know, it shouldn't be this warm. If the reason for whales being malnourished is because of climate change, I think it lends another sort of arrow, if you like, in the, in, the, in the weaponry to really push for doing something about climate change. Like how many more species do we need to lose before we really take action? Is there anything we can do? Absolutely. We can really commit to fighting climate change. I mean, all of us, we can follow some of the targets in the Paris Agreement. We, as individuals, can reduce our use of fossil fuels. We can all go solar. We can not use our dryers and hang clothes on the washing line. They dry in five minutes in this weather. And there's lots of things that we can do. To me, I think as scientists, we, we generate data. We, we find things out. We are a source of information. We generate facts that are correct. You know, they're, they're science. They're, they're observations of what's happening in the natural world. So our role is to really make that information accessible to policymakers and managers and businessmen and people who can make a difference. So really what keeps me going is talking to people about what they can do to make a difference. People do care. It's not as if people just sit there and go, oh yeah, you know, I'm a big businessman, I don't really care what happens. They've got children, they want to make sure that there is a healthy ocean for, for their children to enjoy. They like to go to Hawaii and go snorkeling, they like to see humpback whales. So. It's really, I think, our job as scientists to make sure that people that are really involved in activities such as oil and gas development, big fishing companies, big shipping companies, that those people know and understand what's happening because they have the ability to, to make change. There are many things that we are working on doing, not just us as a company, but other companies and people in general to protect these animals and to find solutions to these problems. The research that we do with Golden Gate Cetacean Research here is working to create more marine protected areas, not just to lower the number of ship strikes that we see every year, but also so that the food sources for these animals have that time to kind of replenish or find new ranges to feed in. So what gives me hope in these times where we are seeing so many deceased whales is honestly the guest faces when we see live whales and we see the activity and small children getting to come out 
and see these animals for the first time in the wild doing completely natural behaviors just really puts that momentum behind people to want to protect these animals. Not just for us, but for those future generations. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Eyes on Conservation that resonates so closely with my own passions. Special thanks to our guests, Sydney Minges, Dr. Sean Johnson, Dr. Francis Gulland, and Mary Jane Schramm for sharing with us the facts about the whale deaths that they discovered through their research and for offering some practical actions we can all take as individuals to prevent species loss due to climate change. If you like what you heard, please consider becoming a patron. Head over to patreon.com slash wildlandscollective to support us on an ongoing basis so our team can continue to bring you high-quality storytelling about our shared environment.